Hello, Higher Side Chatters. You know, it's not often I jump in before an interview to add context, but a lot of unprecedented things are happening these days. Of course, as I've mentioned, the coronavirus chaos really caused me to have to change up the order of interviews and scramble to get some that truly addressed the situation out to you first. Like I've said before, it's kind of like recording four interviews right before 9-11. You can't just proceed as scheduled and have several weeks go by without addressing this big crazy situation that just happened. And it's bittersweet because this was the main interview that kind of had to be put on the back burner. And it's with a guest that I've been wanting to sit down with for years. So I kind of hate to have this small asterisk on it, but... We did make it happen, and I finally got a chance to ask him some of the things I've wanted to hear him weigh in on, things we might call ufology or disclosure adjacent, and then boom, we kind of hit this full-on worldwide threat-level midnight situation. So I apologize to him for the long delay, but towards the end of the first hour, Richard does share his thoughts on the state of things and the technocracy and the surveillance state. And in these new strange times, just a few weeks later, his words have even more weight, I would say. But I hope you're all keeping your humanity and really taking care of the people around you who need it. And that said... As I listen back to this one, it's actually crazy how medicinal it is to hear a conversation from just three weeks ago, when there was still some air left in the room for non-virus-related content. But here we are. Let's get to it. Enjoy. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Fireside Chats. It's the end of the world as we know it, people, but I feel fine. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, just trying to navigate the rough and rugged waters of the vast conspiracy. And despite our ongoing plethora of human problems, from the societal slip into a screen-obsessed dystopia surveillance state and a corporate capstone cabal of controllers hell-bent on feeding their monopoly mindset, it's really the non-human problems that interest me most. Because from the oldest cave paintings and indigenous rituals to ancient texts that tell stories of fiery chariots and flying wheels, it seems that something else has been interacting with mankind for about as far back as we can see. Pile on the rich Celtic lore of visitations, exchanges, and missing time from interactions with the little green people they call fairies, Constantine's fiery cross in the sky, centuries of spirit summoning from the grimoire tradition, the American Roswell, the Russian Roswell, the Battle for Los Angeles event, Marian apparitions, the 1952 White House flyover, messages from channelers, crop circles, and oh yeah, the bountiful cornucopia of contemporary contact experiences, craft sightings, and abductions that we know about, and probably thousands more that just kept quiet. Add it all up, and it almost makes you want to check the skies instead of Twitter. Almost. 
but occasionally even I put my phone down long enough to wonder if we are seeing something akin to our non-human overlords checking up on the beings they built in our human terrarium, or if too many magicians have left their portals open through the years, or even if we're being bagged and tagged in some cosmic human wildlife preserve or alien-human hybrid program. Well, big questions require big guests, and we got the grand poobah of UFO politics and alien encounter studies with us today. His name is Richard Dolan, and he's one of the world's leading researchers and writers on these subjects, with books like UFOs for the 21st Century Mind, AD After Disclosure, and the amazing and ongoing series UFOs and the National Security State, just to name a few. If that wasn't enough, he's also a conspiracy hip historian and has put out an amazing series on false flags for Gaia TV that is truly unlike anything else. He's appeared nearly everywhere an alien enthusiast could appear, and it's a real treat to have him here today. The great guru of UFO history, the academic alien encounter analyzer, and the granddaddy of disclosure discourse, the almighty Richard Dolan. Welcome to the higher side. Thank you, Greg. At least I get the guru and almighty <laughs> phrases in there. So it's about time. Yes, yes, man. I, I had to do it. You <laughs> are one of the greats. And I just wanted to roll out the digital red carpet appropriately. I was trying not to laugh. Thank you very much. That's <laughs> extremely nice of you. But I'm glad to be on here. And I'm looking forward to this. I have a feeling we're going to have a really great conversation. I agree. And I have read most of your work, seen several conference presentations, and it amazes me that so many people still think this is all much ado about nothing, when the truth is, to say there's no evidence for non-human contact is actually the anti-intellectual or even faith-based position, you know, saying, I don't want to believe, because there's no shortage of things to point to, is there? Oh, absolutely. I started on this road more than 25 years ago now, and it was always and has always been an evidence-based quest. So when I started, I was still in my 30s, early 30s, and I had a very simple question, which is, there appear to be some serious-minded people who are taking this subject seriously, and I'd like to know, are they onto something, or should I just ignore this? And so I began to just find out, what is it that these believers actually have as evidence, how strong is the evidence, and so on? And I thought, well, I'll just take a few months out of my life and look into it and find out for myself. And of course, that was in the early 1990s. I've never stopped. What I discovered is that in terms of the modern emphasis of this, the modern phenomenon, you know, since World War II, there's an overwhelming, shockingly large amount of documentation proving, not hinting, not suggesting, but proving that the United States military, the United States intelligence community has been concerned about this phenomenon. They don't know what it is. This has been going on over and over, and it's not only the United States. So you've got the Russian, the Soviet Union cases, you've got other nations, Britain, France, all other modern militaries have encountered these phenomena, these objects that don't look like ordinary aircraft. They don't behave like ordinary aircraft. We don't have any conventional explanation for them. And it's one thing for them to say, well, we don't know what they are. Maybe they're misinterpretation of natural phenomena. But then when you glean the declassified literature and there's enough of it that it is unarguable you see that they were not believing those explanations they were taking this very seriously and they've never stopped so we've got a real mystery on our hands and once i realized that fact early on in my research of doing this that the government was lying at the same time that they were deeply engaged in this 
I was hooked and I've been hooked ever since. And so you go deeper and deeper into it, into this phenomenon and realize, well, if they're lying about this, what else do they lie about? Like for me, the UFO subject was the wedge that opened up everything else that made me question the veracity of what I hear in the kind of Alice in Wonderland fairy tale world that we live in now. Mm, well said. I'm definitely driven by similar thoughts and feelings. Our old theme song used to say, we know they're lying to us, just don't know to what degree, which does allow for you to really explore a whole plethora of things. And I really love having guests who have a crossover expertise, like someone who could compare fairy lore with abductions or occult ritual spirit summoning with alien encounters. Mm -hmm. And what's great about you is that you are a knowledgeable historian who has a lot of insight into how governments operate, how intelligence agencies maneuver in general. And then you add this UFO history. And while I don't think we'll ever see top-down disclosure, it's having this context for both that puts you in this upper class. So I guess let me ask, when you assess UFO culture, let's say, what are the general UFO researchers missing when it comes to the intricacies or nuances of how governments and intelligent agencies actually handle secrets of this magnitude? One thing that I would say, God, I hate to make this sound like I'm ripping on other researchers, but I will just say the vast majority of researchers that I've encountered who are engaged in the UFO subject don't really know history. They don't really understand international geopolitics very well at all. So they miss this huge element of the problem in terms of how this whole thing breaks down internationally. What are the actual goals of the United States? Part of this, there's just not a lot of knowledge. <laughs> so actually, it's a frustration for me when I talk to other colleagues, people who I love and adore, people who I don't care for as much, it doesn't matter. I find that there's this massive hole in historical knowledge, just in general, or it's skewed. You know, it's strong in one particular area, but it's very weak in others. And that includes the whole ancient history part of it, the ancient alien thesis, for example. I find, because I'm a student of ancient history, I don't talk about it a lot, but I'm a very engaged, very active, avid student of ancient history, all phases. Tracy could tell you, like, I'm a nonstop reader. <laughs> so, so even like at the end of the night, I'm in bed, I've got the Kindle and I'm reading some early medieval history or some ancient prehistory. It's a huge thing of mine. And I find it a frustration frequently when I hear people who are talking about ancient anomalies. And it's obvious to me they know nothing about the ancient cultures that they're talking about or very little. And so to me, that's a frustration is it's a lack of historical knowledge and understanding. And particularly in the modern era, a lack of international geopolitical understanding. Mm, yes. Cheers to that. It is really a multidisciplinary thing, even if you don't want it to be. Yeah. Uh, I know you know Gordon White and, you know, starting a conspiracy show, a lot of people talk about magic in this context, really provocative stuff. And he was one of the first ones to say to me, well, they don't know anything about magic. They might like conspiracy, but you can tell their magic knowledge is just in the toilet. Mm -hmm. And so in many ways, like you really have to brush up on so many different areas 
to do this kind of thing right. Luckily, I just asked the questions. Right. Well, I'm a big fan of Gordon, by the way. And I interviewed him on my program about a year ago, I guess. He's brilliant, first of all. And the thing that I love, though, is it's true. Like Gordon brings this other element of expertise, which just simply means he has another perspective on this subject that's quite valuable and very few people offer. So I found myself learning a lot when I spoke with Gordon about this. Right on, right on. Yes. Over the past 10 years, he's been here more than any other guest. Right. So that's kind of funny. But I also know that you're known for coining the term breakaway civilization. Hats off to you. I love a good term coining. And let's fold that in because it's not just that some intelligent agencies are keeping a secret. It's that the black budget accounting is off by several trillion dollars. It's pretty well established that somewhere some people have been working with recovered technology. And if that's yielded results, those who have it would seem too advanced to contain. What are your thoughts on the state of any potential development of alien technology or a group of people who might be beyond being under the thumb of any traditional earthly government? Okay. There's a lot there. So let me just start with the likelihood of attempts to reverse engineer tech that doesn't come from our civilization. My view on this is that this is a virtual certainty. I say virtual. I haven't been to the labs. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't spoken directly to anyone who's been in the labs. I have spoken to people who claim to have some deep inside knowledge of it. I've talked about the conversation I had many years ago with the late astronaut Edgar Mitchell, who told me that he knew from two specific individuals that at deeply classified levels, we had technology and bodies, alien technology and alien bodies that were being worked on. And I've spoken to other people as well, and I have every confidence in those sources. On top of that, I've gone through the research from many decades ago, people like the late Leonard Stringfield, who I'm a huge fan of who interviewed dozens, scores of individuals who got these accounts of reverse engineering alien tech and bodies. So I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly what's been happening. In terms of how deep it goes, that's really the question. About in 2007, 2008, I coined that phrase, breakaway civilization. And it's interesting to see how that's gotten into the culture. My take on it is very simple. I think of a breakaway civilization as a black budget culture kind of on steroids. If you recognize that our classified world, you know, classified technology, they'll keep things from us. We all know that this is true. I've spoken many times of a conversation I had with a former NSA scientist, civilian scientist, back in the 60s, who told me that in 1965, the NSA had a computer running at a clock speed of 600 megahertz. That's very slow by today's <laughs> standards. But in 1965, A, there were no personal computers, and B, there was no personal computer that reached that clock speed till the year 2000, so 35 years later. So the NSA, which was virtually secret agency in 1965, practically no one knew about it, had probably the fastest computer in the world and was decades and decades ahead of the rest of us. So if you Take that and you factor in ET tech, alien tech, and you factor in the incredible reality as we're now learning of privatized secrecy. 
privatize special access programs. And you begin to understand just how deep and how secure those privatized programs are. They are absolutely impervious to public freedom of information requests. So when you look at all of that, you have to ask yourself, what is the likelihood that ET tech has been worked on, the results of that tech classified, allowing those scientists to build on their own classified breakthroughs, but of course, the rest of us are held back on this. And so that breakaway science, that breakthrough science, would allow them to have new ideas, new capabilities, a new cosmology that would qualify them as a separate civilization, literally. When you really ask yourself, what is it that creates the boundaries of a civilization? What is it? How do we define it? So that was the idea that they've broken away. Now, the idea that they don't answer to standard governments, I think that's right. They don't. But you don't even need the idea of a breakaway civilization for that. All one has to do is study the history of wealth, the elite of the elite. You know, back in the 1960s, an author named Ferdinand Lundberg wrote a book called The Rich and the Super Rich. I highly recommend this book. Lundberg had done a previous book in the 30s called America's 60 Ruling Families. He studied the highest level of wealth, the Rockefellers and Rothschilds and the Morgans and so forth. And what Lundberg recognized is that these aren't just ordinary rich people who have better houses, better cars than you and me. These are individuals who can purchase governments, who can purchase entire regions of domains of power. They don't look at the world the way we look at the world, and they don't look at us the way we look at us. So these are people who actually run governments, and that is why, precisely why, they have meetings like the Bilderberg meeting. What does that actually mean? It means that you've got the top movers and shakers in this world who get together very quietly at their five-star hotels, and they talk to each other about how they think the world should be. That's precisely what they do. And then they go back to their various loci of power, and they implement that to the best of their ability, which is usually a very great ability. And that's what happens. That's how the Bilderbergers create the European Union, among many other things. They started the common market back in the 50s. That was their idea. And on and on and on are the examples. So that's how it works. And that's beyond nations. Mm -hmm. That is beyond the nation state. So in terms of a breakaway civilization, we're talking the same basic idea. They are beyond, we're talking privatized slash public, but mostly privatized power that works through public institutions like national governments. So they wield a lot of power. They wield a lot of money power and they wield a lot of tech power. Mm -hmm. Getting through this and figuring out how this labyrinth works, I've been trying to do that for many years now. And I'm not at the end game of it, but I do get to talk with some other very knowledgeable people every now and then, and we try to figure this out. It's not easy, but we work on it. Mm. Yes. Cheers to that. Well said. You're speaking my language. And you mentioned the bodies. And that makes me think of this thing. You know, if we, you know, America lost some citizens or bodies to a foreign nation, we tend to go get them or at least try. And I wonder why we haven't seen that with these alien entities. Any thoughts on that? Why they haven't tried to recover their own bodies? 
Well, we only, as a nation, try to do that when it becomes a public issue and a necessity. Fair. Usually what you'll find is government agencies will beg or pray to let these things go under the rug so they don't have to do anything about it. That's why we have these cover-ups. You know, back in the 70s when cattle mutilations were becoming a big thing, the last thing that the FBI or the government wanted to do was recognize it as a problem because then they would have to do something about it. It's with any of these things. Yes. If the government recognizes UFOs are real, then they have to do something about it. If they recognize that citizens are disappearing, then they have to do something about it. That's always a problem. So first thing is they would rather not do anything about it. But it's true. Like if this were to become a public issue, uh, <laughs> which, you know, our government's up until now have studiously tried to avoid making one. But if it were to become one, well, this is a problem that could easily spiral out of control if people were to get worked up over this because we do have a situation of people apparently, let me just say that, being taken, certainly against their will, brought back. You've got then allegations that I mean, we have lots of disappearing people. It happens all the time. So the real question is, do those people who disappear go somewhere not nice that our government has no control over? And that's a question. I don't have a full answer to that. I mean, I've got ideas and so on, but you're bringing up an important point here. And how that gets resolved, I'm not so sure. I think we're powerless against a lot of this. That's unfortunately the case. Like, I just don't think we've got the ability to deal fully with this phenomenon on an equal basis. Yes, that's absolutely true. And yeah. I just wonder about like on the alien home world, if someone says, my brother never came home, you know, he went down to earth and crashed and he's stuck down there and they get their alien government to go and get the alien bodies that we have stored away. <laughs> you know what I mean? It just seems like they're the ones who let their bodies stay here. But you make a good point about governments don't really want to do things they have to do. It's like the EPA with all the lead pipes in the ground. It's like, if you're not going to complain about it, we're going to tell you it's probably fine. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. That's the easiest, simplest way. It's basically, you know, you've got the everyone's afraid of a lawsuit. Otherwise, I don't think they would really care. As far as alien psychology, you know, you can prompt us to think, well, what would their psychology be? And that's a good thing to wonder about. I have wondered about it. and. My only guess is that their psychology is very likely very different from ours. A, we have to wonder, are they biological in the way that we are? Are they born? Do they have mothers? Do they nurse? Do they bond with mothers and fathers and siblings? Do they have, in other words, that emotional foundation that humans have that define the core of our very being, frankly? I mean, we are defined because we're mammals and we nurse at our mother's breast. When you really think about it. So we're driven by a need for love. We're driven by a need for intimacy. And we're always looking for it. But do they? Mm. And they may not, especially if they're artificially grown, if they're genetically modified. I think that is very likely the case. And so I would expect that their psychological reactions and the drivers are very different from our own. Mm. I think that is probably true. Yes, great insights. And I was going to wade slowly into bodies, but we're in it now. And so I'm curious, mm -hmm. I've heard you talk about this before, but through these privileged conversations that you've had, 
what is the closest you've gotten to real confirmation of alien bodies, dead or alive, preferably alive, but I guess some that somewhere that are they're still on the planet. Have you gotten one degree away, two degrees away? Maybe two. Mm. The one whose name that I can mention is the one I've already mentioned, which was Edgar Mitchell, who um was Apollo fourteen and said to me explicitly he didn't give me names, but I know now that one of those names is almost certainly Admiral Thomas R. Wilson, who has since become quite a bit more famous yes. since some leaked documents came out. But back in 06, I had this conversation with Dr. Mitchell, and we went off into a room alone, and we talked about this. Basically, he talked to me about it and said, yes, I've had two ultra-elite individuals who have confirmed me this isn't just random speculation. The impression he gave me is that this was an explicit statement to him about the possession of in deeply classified, deeply classified special access programs, the possession of alien bodies, plural, and alien technology. So that's the one I can mention. In addition to Edgar Mitchell, there were at least two other very well-known individuals who are I think have been in a very strong position who have also said the same thing to me, that this phenomenon is real, that the bodies, one of them has explicitly said the bodies are real, and one of them is kind of hedged. Hmm. In addition to that, I go through the research, and again, I mentioned Leonard Stringfield. A lot of people don't know who he was, but he's one of the great researchers of all time in the UFO field, died in 1994. And he really got into this in a big way in the late 70s and through the 80s. Found a lot of people. I've got all of Stringfield's writings. So there's actually quite a bit there. Mm -hmm. And this is why I believe it. Aside from the logic of the situation, but I would never believe anything just because it seems logical. I've got to believe in it because there's some evidence or some good testimony that I can go on. Yeah, that's what the people like about you, man. And when we hear about bodies, it's almost always a gray yet when the encounters happen you hear about mantid beans and reptilian beans and insectoid weird things those aren't bodies that i ever really hear about being recovered do you is it always a gray in the in the cases that you've heard about a recovered body or have you heard about a mantid recovered well when you say gray i just want to clarify so there are cases of bodies recovered that are small with large heads, but not precisely as we would define a gray. So there have been some variations of this. So some actually that look a bit more human looking, but they're not human, that type of thing. I'm thinking of, thinking of the Kingman UFO crash from 1953. Now there's one, the crash in Aztec, New Mexico from 1948. I think those creatures, if I'm not mistaken, from the research of Scott and Suzanne Ramsey, they might have been a bit more gray-like. But in terms of what you're asking, no, I'm not aware of insectoid or mantid-type beings being recovered in these crashes, but I would keep in mind, we actually know very little about these crashes. So, for example, we know about Roswell mainly for one reason, which is because it made the newspapers for a little while and then was pulled. And, you know, it's true, Stanton Friedman stumbled, basically, upon Jesse Marcel. But most of these crashes are really well concealed. 
they're very difficult for us to get to. There is partial information on a lot of them. But it's not the easiest. But to answer your question, I'm not aware of insect-type beings being recovered in these crashes, nor am I aware of insect-like beings being held at places like Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. The stories that I have read through Stringfield's work and others is that we're talking three to four feet tall, large heads, so gray-like beings. The reason that might be the case is that maybe they're the operators of these craft. Right. You know, the speculation is that they're kind of androids themselves. Maybe that's true, and if that's so, then maybe it's more logical to have them operating these craft for all I know, but I'm just guessing here. Yeah, that's kind of what I was going to say, is that it seems like maybe the greys or the little humanoid things are drones, and maybe they work for the mantids on the home world. Who, they just don't come out here all that often, but uh, it is a curious thing. Yeah, that's the theory of David Jacobs. I really like David, and I think he's probably fully retired now, but his last couple of books, especially his last one book, Walking Among Us, goes explicitly into this series, is what David did I really admire because he's one of the few researchers who actually tried to do, let's say, counterintelligence on these other beings. In other words, trying to hypothesize what could be the full nature of their society. What are they like? Because you don't really get a lot of this. But David has given it a good try, and his theory is that the insectoids, the mantid-type beings, are at the top of the chain, and that there are various levels of hybrids, one of which are the gray aliens, the grays. Mm -hmm. So that's his theory. Yes, and uh, you know, you were talking about the secrecy a little bit around these crashes, and let me ask you this, because sometimes shows like this keep going over what happened in 1947, what's in the basement at Wright-Patterson. But today, it's safe to assume that a lot of this stuff is deep private, as you've said before. If you could gain full access to a single facility right now, either Bigelow Airspace or Boeing's back room or even the Vatican archives, what single facility would you think would yield the best fruits when it comes to non-human beings and their technology? Hmm. Well, one actually would be a military facility. That would be Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. I would definitely want to, I would love to have full access to Wright-Pat. <laughs> you think stuff is still there? I would think it's a few decades past Wright-Pat. I don't know. I wouldn't count on it. Okay. I don't know. I think that they probably still would. But in terms of private, I would definitely look at Lockheed Martin. And I think that as an organization, they would be the betting choice for the people that Admiral Wilson spoke to back in 2002, who denied him access to that program. Definitely, I would be looking at Boeing. Definitely, I would be looking at a few other private contractors, places like Raytheon, SAIC. Places like that, I think we're talking major defense contractors. What I think the situation is, however, is one where you've got small, small segments of these large military contractors that are read into it. And I think, you know, most of Lockheed is not going to be read into that. Most of Boeing's not going to be read into that. 
So that's where I would be wanting. I would love to have access to some of those. Yes. I don't expect that will ever happen. <laughs> yeah. And uh, SAIC is a, is a great pick too. And let's make this a little bit weirder. I know your wife is a trained remote viewer. Have you ever had her sneak a peek? Here's the thing about this. Tracy would be the first to tell you. Remote viewers, you don't want to front load them. That's her phrase. That's a phrase in the field. In other words, remote viewing always works best when the remote viewer themselves has no idea of what they're looking for. I mean, I've actually talked about this just for fun with Tracy and said, you know, you should just let me pick a few targets. You have no idea what I'm picking. Her attitude is, yeah, you think I have no idea. I know exactly how your mind works. I know what you'll want me to look for. And so the thing is, when the conscious mind gets involved, you're really contaminating it. And this is why a lot of people who will say, oh, yes, I remote viewed the moon and this is what I found. Like, you can just throw that right out. That's trash. There's nothing to be gained from that. The way remote viewing is properly done is you have one person who's the program manager. He or she's got a series of remote viewers working for them, and he assigns tasks to them, and then he gets the results from them, and you have a team of people analyzing those results. That's actually the proper way to do it. So believe me, I would love to have Tracy <laughs> do it. If I could figure out a way to do it without front-loading her, I would try to do it. So um, we'll leave it as, <laughs> sure, down the road if I can trick her into not thinking that she's being front loaded. <laughs> <laughs> Hell of a date night, I would say. And it's just so fascinating that these psi effects are legit. I know you've referenced Dean Radin's work before. I know that you're familiar with the SRI crew and have had conversations yeah. with Edgar Mitchell, as you said. Mm -hmm. And I am really more interested in the consciousness component than I am the nuts and bolts crafts. But, you know, whatever. The evidence is the evidence. But these guys are all getting pretty old. and I am. Kind of surprised we aren't getting more late stages of life confessions. I mean, how much further has the needle moved for you by talking to these guys as they're getting up in age? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. I have tried on a few of these instances to convince some of these people with whom I have limited access to think about their legacy and to think about the legacy of our planet, you know, after they're gone. I have actually said these types of things and said, you're going to be gone one day. Your information is going to go with you. You can make a really important statement and you can do something for the rest of us. The problem that I keep running into with some of these individuals is they are not going willingly to break security protocols. They're just not going to do it. Most of them are just not going to. All the ones that I've met anyway. They'll talk amongst themselves. They'll talk quietly to someone that they can trust on the proviso that you don't give their name up. And then if you give their name up, they'll just deny it anyway and you're left out in the cold. It's that type of a thing. So this is what I found. Now, I haven't given up. I mean, of course, I'm not in their position. It's easy for me to say this because I don't have classified threats. And you know, here's one example that I'll give you. You know, we mentioned Edgar Mitchell and years ago I wrote to him and I said, Hey, look, you tell me you support my work and you like what I do. You've told me that you've got a couple of high level people who've 
confirmed about alien bodies and tech to you. I said, can you throw me a bone? That's almost exactly what I said. Can you point me in a direction that I can go that would be useful for me? And his reply was, look, I would like to help you, but the people who came to me did so at great risk personally, professionally, and risk to their families. And he said, as long as they're alive, I can't do that. I won't do that to them. So he said risk to their families. And he didn't expand on that, but I think we can all infer what that is. So these individuals that I know who are still alive now, I mean, I haven't really gotten them to open up all that much about this except for them to say it's not going to happen. But they're all afraid. And the other thing is they're trying in their own way, it seems to me, to get further access. Because it's not like all of these people have the full keys to the kingdom. I think they probably don't, actually. I think they know something. Everyone in their community knows something, but they all want to know more. <laughs> and so they're angling their way to get to the center, you know? Yeah. I don't think they ever will. But that's the way it works. You're talking circles within circles within circles. And everyone wants to get to the next level in. And so they don't want to risk it. One of these individuals said to me, this is years ago, years ago, he said, all right, let's say that I knew who the top 10, 15 names of the people who know everything. Let's say that I had that list and let's say that I could give that list to the New York Times, which even then made me laugh, like the New York Times, are you kidding me? Right. Like they would do anything with it. But he says, let's say I give it to the New York Times and let's say that they publish that list. He said, well, A, the people involved could just simply deny and say that that's a lot of nonsense. It's disinformation. And B, it would probably be traced back to me, and then I'm locked out of everything. So that's really their situation. I think that a lot of those people who have some aspect of the secret might want to see that secret come out, but they feel they don't really have enough of a slam dunk amount of evidence that they could show the world. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, so they go on their name, their reputation, but is it enough? Is it really enough? And I think they think it's not enough. Yeah. They want a body themselves. They want an indisputable document or whatever. And I don't know that they've got that either. So they would be going out there totally exposed. It's a really weird situation. Now the people in the programs who are directly in these programs, that would be different. Unfortunately for me, I don't know any of those people <laughs> that I am aware of, so I wouldn't know what to say about that. Right. Yeah, it's just so frustrating. And I understand a person not wanting to put their family at risk, but there's a lot of potential for revealing documents and details to people like you in the result of someone's death. And these guys are getting up there in age, as we've said. And I can't imagine that it would actually put their sons and daughters at risk once they've passed on. I get that just the threat of it is enough to keep everyone in line, but someone has to be bold enough to push through that. Unless there's more we need to know about the people who make these threats in the first place. Well, with any of these people, I think it's probably true. If one of them dies and something is revealed posthumously, what's the point of going after other family members? Like, they didn't do anything wrong. So realistically, I would think that those other family members would not be at risk. But 
The point is that while these people are alive, they do not want to break ranks. And I have tried and I'll try again. I'm not giving up, but <laughs> I'm not expecting a lot of success, to be honest. Fair, fair. I won't hold my breath, but you know, I asked you about gaining access to a single facility. What about getting a, a full top-down briefing from a single person? Which one person's secrets would you like to know? Who do you think knows the most? Well, of public individuals that are well-known, one person I've never spoken to and I would love to would be Robert Bigelow himself. Yeah. <laughs> He's a man who is extremely intelligent and not only that, he has been deeply immersed in this for many decades. He has probably put more money into the research of this than any other private citizen I can think of. And he's been a defense contractor on the subject through the ATIP program, as we know. I would bet a fair <laughs> all the little money that I have that Bigelow has a lot of information that he hasn't shared publicly. That's just a guess. In terms of people within the classified world, there's a very few people within the Defense Department. You've got basically three groups within the government where you've got these special access programs operating. So one is the Pentagon, the Department of Defense. You've got the Department of Energy and you've got the CIA. This is what I have learned. So the Defense Department special access programs, you can glean a little bit about this actually by studying the Wilson Davis notes, the Admiral Wilson document that leaked out last June of 2019. And you can see that within the Defense Department, the Office of Special Acquisitions, within that there's a structure within which these special access programs exist. And the number of people who have access to them, you could, I think you can count on the fingers of one hand. So it's a very limited group of people, it seems. And what you really have in that case within the Pentagon is a small group of people who are guarding access to a private corporation being able to exploit this technology. That's really what it is. So the federal government is acting as a, as a security guard for private contractors. And the same thing, from what I have been told, applies within the CIA. I don't know to if it's a greater extent or a lesser extent than the Pentagon, but what I have learned is that the area probably of the least oversight is the Department of Energy, which, you know, if people know their history of Area 51, they know that the Department of Energy has had a very significant role out at the Nevada test site and by Area 51. So those are the three, and the individuals managing those special access programs would be very important to talk to, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. Indeed, indeed. And I like to ask questions I don't hear people ask. Otherwise, why are we doing this? And mm -hmm. we want answers about these entities. And there are some ways to take this upon ourselves, at least to a degree, maybe not to the exact extent that we want to, or maybe not the exact same beans, but desperate times, desperate measures and all that. I am curious if you've ever explored the techniques that do yield contact experiences with something non-human, particularly psychedelics. People do take mushrooms or salvia or ayahuasca, natural plant medicines, nothing from the MKUltra labs, and they have contact of some sort. 
And I got a guy. I can give him a call. We can ask them about alien agendas before dinner tonight if we want to. But have you ever explored that avenue? Nope. I've not done psychedelics. I don't really have a plan to. Kicked around the idea of doing an ayahuasca journey and maybe one day it'll happen. I'll just get into that mode and I'll I'll just go out and do it. But I haven't really been tempted to do it. And I'll truthfully tell you I'm skeptical of the value of that information. Now, I am aware that a lot of folks who've done these types of hallucinogenics have compared notes with each other. And they'll talk about snake-like people. Or I just had a conversation, you know, about a year ago with Nick Redfern, who studied men in black. And he told me about someone who had a DMT experience where they saw men in black. Now, the question is, did they or didn't they? I don't really think that anyone has confirmed. Are you truly breaking through the doors of perception to another dimension or to another place within your own psyche? Maybe people who have done this have a very strong opinion one way or the other, but I have personally spoken to people who've had either of those opinions. So mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure what I think about that. That's fair. I mean, even the psychedelic community is split, as you say. I have had one breakthrough experience, and the day before, I would have been fully convinced that these things weren't real, that people are meeting on drugs. But after it happens, it's just right. a feeling that you have. It's like, how could you explain green to a blind person? You know, it's like, you know it when you see it. No, no, I get it. And I'm not even dismissing what you say. I mean, please understand, I'm not. Yeah. You might be right. My attitude about dimensions, and I'm speaking as a non-scientist here, but I do believe that there are areas of reality that we cannot ordinarily perceive. It's simply a limitation of our senses. Right? We have to remember, we have senses that allow us to perceive certain things about the world around us, but you know, maybe it's possible that a psychedelic can activate part of the mind and activate another sense. So I keep that as a possibility. I would not rule that out. The question is what kind of actionable information can you take away from that experience? That's another question. Like, who are these people? Can you have a conversation with them? Can you learn about their psychology? Can you learn about their motivations? Can you learn about why they seem to be abducting people? Can you learn about their physics? Can you learn about their material science, which seems to be off the charts. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So like, I don't know how much actual information one can get out of that other than they love us or they don't love us or, <laughs> you know, things like that. Or the message which you hear, you know, love each other and this way you can ascend. I mean, the ascension message was one that just flooded us in the ramp up to 2012. And I mean, if another alien is going to give me another moralistic platitude, then Better you take it than me. I'm kind of done with that. <laughs> fair. Not fair. working, just platitudes. Yes. And of course, it's not even a guarantee that these are the same beings. Even if you were to say that these psychedelic experience contact things are real, I mean, doesn't mean it's the same entities at all. But I know you're aware of that documentary, Witness of Another World. You've had uh, mm -hmm. the director on your show as well. Yes, indeed. And what's curious about that is the main subject of the film has this experience and it just uproots his life, but then he learns that he has a lineage of shamanism, and you hear from the actual shamans, and they're not surprised by UFO activity at all. They're just like, yeah, it's very normal, we're familiar with it. So it's really the shamans that make me think that there's a deeper connection, even more so than my own limited experience. 
I'm on board with a lot of what you're saying here. And I thought Witness to Another World was a fascinating film. And I was really happy to talk to the creator of that, Alan Stivelman, myself, and I really like what he was doing there. It's a fair question. There's an element of this phenomenon that's definitely physical, definitely technological. And there is an element of this phenomenon that is, you could say, consciousness-based, but it's almost even beyond consciousness in the sense of it thinks so far ahead of us. Probably, you know, I came across an interview not long ago by Dr. Eric Davis, who's one of those guys on the inside, at least to some extent, he's on the inside, he knows a lot. And Davis put it like that. I think it was with Alejandro Rojas. And he just said, you've got a technological phenomenon. At the same time, you've got something that's precognitively conscious of us or sentient in a precognitive way, like so far beyond us, we don't know how to deal with it. So that would almost seem like there's this spiritual element to what at least appears to be the phenomenon. But there's definitely technology involved too. So it's tricky to try to understand what exactly are we dealing with. But the consciousness part of it really does matter. And I mean, how could it not if you're talking about people getting telepathic messages, which that's consciousness? You know, we don't understand this. You find a scientist who can explain how remote viewing works, the physics of it. And none of these people can. You have people who say, oh, yeah, well, it works. Okay, well, fine. So it works. But like, how does it work? How is it possible for a human being to perceive something literally on the other side of the world? And how is it possible for a human being to perceive something in another time, whether past or future? Like that wreaks havoc with our common sense notion of space and time. And yet the fact is there are people who can do those things. How is telepathy, that is clairaudience, really, how is that even physically possible? We don't have answers for that, as far as I can see. I've never come across a single scientist who actually knows how to explain it. That's why they dismiss it, because they don't have a theory for it. But yet it's true. So for that reason, it makes it really hard for us to understand these more difficult elements that the UFO problem incorporates. It incorporates this type of advanced consciousness. And the fact is, we don't know how to explain it. So we're kind of grasping around, flailing in the dark here to try to come up with a genuine answer that incorporates. It's almost like coming up with the grand theory of physics, right? Which they've all won. <laughs> Physicists won. They don't have. So to understand UFOs, you might need a kind of grand theory of physics to incorporate it because it really is beyond our current understanding of things. Oh, I absolutely agree. And I've had a lot of guests on about the electric universe model and about ether physics, because the whole thing is if these crafts are real, then they work that like you say, they work. So we have to figure out what they're doing. And there are people in the realm of ether physics who think they know. And uh, that's kind of exciting. But like like you said it is a it's a tangled web and i do like the consciousness side of things i like the spiritual side and then i come back to someone like stringfield and those crash retrievals and then you're right back to the physical and it is just uh, a lot to unpack and 
Again, just because I don't hear you asked about this really ever, let me ask you about occult ritual or mm-hmm. those types of forms of contact. Because I know you've written about Crowley and Lom. I know you've interviewed Gordon White, of course. Have you ever considered sitting in on a summoning or invocation to see what type of contact is possible in that way? Well, it's something that I could try. Let me just say, I've researched all of this in various ways. So it's something that I've known about for a long time. You know, I know what ceremonial magic is, and I understand the principles of it. The question is, have I ever ever tried it in a serious way? No. Would I ever participate or at least watch? Yes, I would definitely watch to see what's going on there. It's, I mean, it's hard to say. Like, I know what ritual is and I know what ritual does. I've participated in rituals even at monastic retreats, for goodness sake. I mean, there's a value to having ritual in a spiritual practice. It's actually really important because what a ritual does, of course, is it trains your mind. That's really what it is. It's just a way to focus your mind. Your mind is the tool and the ritual is, well, it's the means for getting your mind as a tool to work in a certain way. That's really all it is. So, you know, ritual, I mean, scientists really don't fully understand, often I feel, the power of what ritual can do. Now, the real question that maybe you're getting at, I don't know, is can ritual in this manner, the ritual of invocation in this case, bring in entities from elsewhere, presumably through the power of our own mind? And, you know, there are stories that this has happened. I mean, this is the story of Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard, right, from Nevada in the 1940s. That's what Parsons did. Right. All I can say is maybe, (laughs) maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just one of those things where I know it's strange, but I get sick of waiting for deathbed confessions or disclosure, and I just want to jump in the deep end of the pool. Or actually, I want you to do it and then tell me how it goes. But (laughs) I mean, even Stephen Greer, to an an extent, could fall into that category. And there's definitely Uh, stories of of, uh, summoning UFOs. I mean, that's what the CE5 stuff is. That's exactly what it is. And what he's done, no, he's created a ritual. That's exactly what that is. So the CE5, he calls it a protocol, but it's a ritual. But it's a method by which you focus your intention. And I've participated in CE5 events. I've gone. I've never had any remote success. And I have friends who do CE5, and I respect them, and I believe them when they tell me that things have happened. So I don't want to be misunderstood, but I do know that there are many cases where People will do CE5s and they turn a satellite into, you know, an alien craft. And that happens a lot. So the power of belief can go both ways. Maybe there's an actual summoning. I definitely leave that as a possibility. But there's a lot of noise in that whole thing. So it's so true. Again, it's a crapshoot. But I would, if I had people who said, Richard, we want you out there for CE5, if it's a nice warm night. And I don't mind the company, I would consider, I suppose. (laughs) 
I put a lot more stock in the kind of grimoire magic than I do CE5 just because there's a longer history. I mean, I still don't have experience with it. And just like alien bodies in the basement of Wright-Patterson, I got to take someone else's word for it. But we hear about it enough that I think there's some meat on those bones. And of course, Peter Lavenda's written about blue blood elite summonings and contact with the nine and uh, some beans and spaceships, apparently, that said they want to enact their will through these people in this farmhouse in Maine. So they've done it. It's just like, I guess I get impatient with these certain people, the Invisible College having this information. They're not letting loose on their grip. And there might be other ways to, to get out of the library and into the field and possibly contact something firsthand. I can appreciate the impatience. Um, <laughs> I've felt it many, many times in my life. I mean, here's the thing. We're dumped into a world that's got now seven and a half billion people. There's a lot of people out there. There's a lot of forces out there in this world. There's a structure in this world. And for better or for worse, it is an entrenched structure. And for any one of us to think, oh yeah, I'm just gonna go in and I'm gonna rearrange that structure. I'm gonna change things. I'm gonna make this radical change. You know, I had this idea as well years ago and it hasn't happened. Now, it doesn't mean that change doesn't happen, but dramatic change, like flipping a switch and disclosure and that type of thing. I'm not so sure about that anymore. When I wrote my first book, UFOs in the National Security State, the first volume, I was writing it all through the later half of the 1990s. And I wouldn't say that I thought that that book would be the hammer that broke the wall of secrecy, but I did allow myself some fantasy moments late at night thinking, maybe this will be the hammer that breaks the secrecy. Like maybe, what if, if I do just a perfect enough argument, I lay things out, make it airtight and so on and so on, that that would affect enough people. and. What it did instead is it was a popular book in the UFO field. It has affected our community and perhaps has had a slow ripple effect, very slow, has contributed, I should say, to a slow ripple effect for the rest of the world. But it hasn't changed the structure of power. And we have a very entrenched system here. It's very entrenched. I think that we all benefit from pushing the reality of this phenomenon and getting it out there as effectively as possible. I'm a firm believer in that. I don't like being lied to by my government. I don't like being treated like I'm five years old, spoon-fed bullshit for the rest of my life while a whole other reality is there and that's unacknowledged. So I'm not a fan of that. On the other hand, to think that I or anyone else is going to be able to transform that overnight strikes me the more I go into this as fantasy thinking. So I'm going to try to be realistic here. And, you know, I think it was Jordan Peterson, who I very much admire, who made an analogy. He said, you know, people go into this world thinking they're just going to change the world. Like they know how the world system should work. He said, imagine you're going to go and take on a helicopter. You have this idea that you can design this helicopter and change it around and make it fly better. He said, all you'll do is you'll destroy the helicopter. <laughs> and he pointed out, you know, the global system, the societal system of the things that make our community work are equally intricately complex. 
And I think his point in his case was don't go thinking that you can just go in and muck about and not make things worse instead of making them better. Now, in our case, I have believed consistently for the 25 years that I've worked on this that UFO secrecy has damaged our society more than it has helped our society. But there's a couple of what ifs. You know, what if the story about Jimmy Carter crying in his Oval Office in 1977 was based on the fact that he recognized that this reality is dark and we don't have any way of controlling it? You know, if these beings could squash us like a bug or if they've infiltrated us or if they're undermining us or if they're doing terrible things to us and he can't control. Like, what if that were true and we don't know how to stop it? Then is disclosure good or not? Well, my attitude is the truth is always better than fiction. But all I'm saying is (laughs) I'm doing everything that I feel I can do to shed light on this subject, but I'm not going to hold my breath and think that we're going to change things. I mean, one of the things that we're dealing with, we haven't yet discussed, but I'd be up for it, is the technological transformation of our society and what it's doing to us. Basically, the whole transhumanist revolution that is right at our doorstep. Sure, yeah. And that is including whether it's AI or 5G tech, 5G technology, and the coming 24-7 nonstop surveillance state that will not only be watching us all the time, but will be literally controlling our behavior and turning us into a different sort of human, one without initiative, one without will. I really believe that's what's happening. And so that's a huge transformational shift that's going on to our species. It'll take a few generations, but it's happening. And you can actually see culturally that that it's changing successive generations from the last more and more, in my view, absolutely in a bad way. In other words, 20 years from now, let's say we get to a point where a disclosure can happen. The question that I think we can ask is, will it happen in a way that is completely controlled by the established powers with total spin and manipulation of data so that it's almost as if disclosure didn't even happen? You know, if you look at all the amount of UFO data that exists as a mountain, imagine that the tiniest sliver of that mountain is disclosed giving a very, very skewed view of what this subject is, and life goes on. While everyone's now, you know, having their (laughs) total immersive video games and having their Soylent Green or doing whatever and living their own little fantasy world. Because that's really all that's going to happen. There's not going to be jobs for people. They're going to be living off of a system where they're controlled. They're given a certain income. And because you're given an income from the state, you're controlled by the state. And, you know, the last thing governments will want from citizens that are totally dependent on them is initiative and independent thought. And they'll make absolutely sure that there is no initiative and no independent thought. Mm -hmm. And you do that through shit food, through shit entertainment and fantasy games. Yes. More and more fantasy games. And, you know, we see it even in Hollywood with the superhero movies and all the fantasy themes that they have coming out, but you'll see it throughout the culture. So it's a complete divorce from reality. 
I think that's what we're looking at. And so in that kind of a world, I really ask myself, like, what will disclosure even matter? Because it's almost likely going to be given to an utterly ignorant population that has no sense of his own history anymore, that has no sense of his own humanity anymore. Will it even matter? I mean, this is, I guess, some of my darker thoughts, but <laughs> I can't lie to you and say, like, I don't think about it because I do think about it. I wonder about this. Right. Well, you're in good company here. And I actually have a quote of yours that's really great about technology where you say, it won't end with us being watched. Mind reading technologies are being developed. Electrodes can be attached to your skull and algorithms can identify the words you think with 90% accuracy. You see, your brain produces certain wavelengths when you think certain words. So, surprise, the current tech is a bit clunky since it requires you to be thinking actual words and they still need wires connected to your skull, but it's a start. What is unnerving is how optimistic some of these articles sound, how happy the authors are that these new technologies can, quote, help people. How wonderful. Sure, who doesn't want their mind picked open by a futuristic, artificially intelligent locksmith? I mean, bam, there it is. Some of these writers, I mean, I just think how utterly irresponsible they are. Most of them aren't really that smart. They're basically shills for their corporate masters anyway. And, you know, they pose as journalists. They're not actually journalists in my view. So they're propagandists. That's really what they are. And I think that that's a lot of the optimism comes from either intentional propaganda or more realistically just kind of not very deeply philosophical people, which is normal, who are hired by these corporations and they're asked to write a story on the subject and then they, they know what's expected of them. So that's what they do. And, you know, there's always short-term gain. Like, for example, if you want to implement a smart city, so-called smart city, what all that means is that it's under total surveillance. Like every element of that city has got monitors in various ways. It very likely would result in less street crime. I mean, in theory, right? Because if everyone's being surveilled with facial recognition and voice recognition software, and all of that is pervasive, then if you commit a crime, you're gonna get caught. And even if you're wearing a mask, there's body language recognition. I mean, there's all of these types of technologies that are coming online, like it's gonna be impossible to do anything without being monitored. Sure, it'll make the streets safer in that sense. And that's good. Like, we don't want to go out and get mugged. Hey, I was mugged once many years ago. I wouldn't want it to happen again. So there's that. On the other side of it is you are paying a price where you have zero privacy inside your home, inside your bedroom, most likely, and certainly out in the street. So when you know that you have no privacy, well, that changes your behavior entirely. And then, of course, there's even more than that. There's the whole ability to create a, not even simply a minority report type of situation where your behaviors can be predicted. But the fact is, every one of us, even right now, has created a digital footprint through our web browsing activity, through our phone, through our email, through our buying habits, through our GPS on our phone, all of that and more. We're at the point now where Algorithms can be created, a variety of them, not just to predict your behavior, but to create a complete psychological profile of who you are mm -hmm. in the sense that someone else can know you better than you know yourself in a lot of ways, or better than I know myself. Like that's actually possible now. 
And the only question is, who's got access to that information? Well, in China, the government has access to that information. In the West, corporations and maybe some government agents have access to that information. We don't really know. Yeah. In the West, a lot of it's corporate so that they can sell you things and manipulate you that way. But that's the world we're moving into, and it's only going to get worse. It's not going to get better. And that's the thing that's actually the saddest part of the world we're moving into is this loss of our most fundamental element of humanity, which is not simply our privacy, but our independence as human beings. Like if you don't have that, if you're not sovereign of yourself, what are you even doing, right? So that's what's wearing away. And that's the thing that if I could stop anything, anything in the world from happening, I would stop that. I just don't know how. Amen. Yes. You're preaching to the choir. I mean, hosting a show like this, I think about this stuff every day in a cold sweat in bed. And, uh, yeah. you know, but give me liberty or give me death, you know? <laughs> what can you say? Indeed. <laughs> and I know we're running out of time. The last disinfo element I wanted to bring in just to talk more about the obvious red herrings in ufology. You've done some pretty epic takedowns of the Corey Good, David Wilcox stuff. And to be honest, an interview with them and a request from Roger Stone's publisher are the only two real big interviews I've declined to do. Roger Stone just scares me. But the Corey Good and Wilcox stuff, even though I've done much crazier interviews, and as you say, I'm willing to talk to anyone in this field, there is a weird feeling I get when a narrative gets too popular. And I think it starts doing a lot of harm. And I personally don't want to contribute to the problem, despite what a few shows in my archive might suggest. But hey, those were different times. And I guess to make a question out of this, do you have any gripes with alternative media or advice to make it a positive thing for interviewers in this space when it comes to that balance between wanting to get an epic story that is just a witness account with no evidence versus not wanting to do harm in the overall quest for truthiness? I think I understand the question. Alternative media, I mean, is actually now just non-corporate, non-establishment media, I guess, is everything else. And, you know, the thing is, we always must still, I feel, if we're responsible, we have to follow standard journalistic rules, which is you should know what your sources are. You should try to confirm your sources and things like that. I mean, I don't think that ever changes. That's just basic common sense. There's a responsibility in doing the things that we do. I remember the first time I was ever interviewed for any TV thing ever. It was a little thing that I think went nowhere anyway. But I remember just as before I started speaking, I thought, oh, my God, like there are going to be people who don't know me, who are going to hear my words. And that's going to have an effect on on their thinking, like including young people. And I just had this idea that like everything that I say matters. Everything I say matters. And therefore, I take it seriously. And therefore, I don't want to just toss out something unless I feel really strongly and confident about it. And so when, when I come across stories in the UFO field, and there's so many of them, and there's a long history of this. This goes back an entire human lifetime of stories of unconfirmed. Like I had contact with this alien being and they told me this or they told me that. This is an old story, not a new story. My attitude is 
unless you can show me genuine evidence, I'm putting it in the same category with all the other fake stories that have happened in the past. And I'm just not going to accept it. I won't accept it. I won't call someone a liar. I don't want to get into a personal vendetta with anybody. It's not healthy for me, and it's a waste of time, frankly. But I strongly believe in evidence-based journalism, whether it's in ufology or not in ufology. It doesn't matter. That means alternative-based, non-corporate establishment as well as anything else. Now, it's hard sometimes to get the kind of levels of evidence and proof that we would ideally want when we're doing a story. And it's fair to interview someone who just makes one claim. Like, absolutely, it's fair. And it's up to each person to decide, do I choose to believe this person or not? So there's always going to be these stories out there. But for my part, like, I just feel, I mean, I just know from the UFO field that most people, like, they want answers. They're desperate for answers. And when someone comes along, like the next new person who comes along and says, I have all the answers, they're always going to get a certain number of people who want to latch on to them because whether they have a magnetic or a personality or they've got a really cool story, people will just, they like it. They like to entertain it because most people, the stakes aren't really even that high. What's the big deal if I choose to believe this guy? For me, <laughs> there's no way, like I have to be careful. I can't just throw in with any old person who comes in without a shred of, like, you've got to give me something, man. You've got to give me something that I can work with. I've got to be able to investigate either the people, like, if you have a claim that is so outlandish, like, you've done time travel, which is <laughs> one of these claims, then you've got to give me something extra here. Give me access to all, to all the people close to you. Give me access. Well, what has happened, of course, in that particular case is that no one, I, I don't even like to mention these people by name. I don't like to give them the credit. Fair. There's a lot of these people in this field. And ultimately, one of the YouTube videos I think I created is why false claims ultimately crash and burn. I think it was something like that. And it's true. Like, ultimately, the truth is going to win. It just often takes a long time and it's frustrating. But I believe in the truth and I believe in journalistic responsibility. And it's hard, you know, honestly, countless times I could have, if I really wanted to get more clicks or more book sales or whatever, I could have gone into the deep end and just repeated every crazy ass story that's ever come to me. But I'm not going to do it because I don't believe a lot of those stories. And if I don't really believe it, I'm not going to offer it to you or to anyone else. And the problem is there are unfortunately a number of authors and public speakers who they either have a really low level of what they believe or they just actually are consciously lying. And there's both groups. Mm -hmm. Like There are people in this field who I know that they're lying. I know they don't believe a word of what they say. Can't prove it, but I'm <laughs> pretty sure they don't believe it. And then there's others who I just think are pretty credulous. I agree. And it's just sometimes hard to be a host in this field and be attracted to extremes. But if the goal is to reveal things and do no harm, you can't go to the furthest extreme because then you are doing harm. 
And uh, there is a bit of responsibility. And maybe when I was 25, I didn't get it. Now that I'm 35, I'm trying to reel back, to, you know, to some uh, to some island of sanity. But you know, here we are. So <laughs> that's right. The things that we do matter. Like my attitude is everything I say matters. Everything I do matters, even if no one's looking at me. So that's how I try to live my life, which means that when I make a public statement, I want to be confident of that what I'm saying is at least I actually believe it's true. I mean, I can be wrong. It's no sin in being wrong. It's normal. It's normal to be wrong. There's nothing wrong with admitting you've been wrong, in my opinion. I've had disagreements with all kinds of people, and lots of times I later thought, yeah, I was wrong. <laughs> and that's actually where Bertrand Russell says that's where science is great, because if science is not committed to one particular answer, science can be flexible. And I think that's the best attitude. Like, that's what you want. You want to be able to change your mind. Problem, by the way, with being a public figure, this is every public figure, everyone's got this, and if they deny it, they're lying, is that there's always pressure. Like once you've put a position out there in the world, the pressure is on you to maintain that position. Yes. And they've got these expectations of you. And your job as a public figure is to fight that every inch of the way because the fact is you're always going to be in danger of solidifying and losing your flexibility. If you're not a public figure, who cares if you change your opinion? No one cares. If you're a public figure and you do a 180, well, then people like they get upset with you and no one should deceive themselves. Like there's a tremendous psychological pressure on everyone, including myself to do that. Now, the difference with me is I remind myself of this all the time and I always try to fight it and I do my best, you know, <laughs> I mean, I do my best, but fortunately I'm in a good position where I actually like the public positions I have, I believe them. I genuinely believe them. But ultimately, it means being evidence-based. Mm -hmm. And because I've staked that out very consciously, I don't mind if I have to change my opinion on things. Like, I don't mind too much. <laughs> the thing is, when you change your opinion, you're implicitly recognizing, oh, well, I was wrong. <laughs> was I therefore stupid? <laughs> you know, did I believe this really dumb thing for a long time? And sometimes that's true. That's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. It's the problem that academicians often have is like they're sometimes the most pig-headed, dumb people on UFOs ever because they've been in this field for a long time. They've denied it, denied it, denied it, denied it. They're very accomplished in their field. They're very intelligent generally. They think they're smarter than most other people, and so they don't want to. This is an insult to their intelligence. That's really what it is, and they you know, get them to admit that. <laughs> Good luck, though. Very few. Very few people will do that. Right. They get committed. But man, I'm so glad you said some of those things. They're very helpful for me. I'm going to be thinking about that for a long time, I'm sure. But Richard, this has been awesome. A real honor and a pleasure. I've definitely tried to mobilize my resources lately to get you here. And I'm sure you heard it from a couple different sides. And I appreciate it because I know you're busy. And I know my branding and everything can seem a bit wild and over the top. And some serious people don't want to be associated with all that and the silly, conspiracy-minded, stoner, dropout host. But I'm trying to buck preconceived notions of what that means, just like you might be for what people think of ufology researchers. So thanks for taking the risk. Before we go, I definitely want to encourage people to read your books. You also have a member site that has so much high-quality information for people who want to kick it up a notch. But do take just a minute to tell them 
where they can further scratch the Richard Dolan itch, so to speak. Thank you. And by the way, I've really enjoyed this with you, Greg. It was a great conversation. So yeah, I enjoyed it very much. I've got two main websites, one for my books. It's Richard Dolan Press. It's easy to navigate through. I publish some books by other individuals as well, some really good authors. You can check those out. And my most active website is richarddolanmembers.com, where I put up fresh material all the time. I'm constantly, whether it's through articles or off-the-cuff videos that I record all the time, I have a weekly hour-long podcast that's for members of that site. And part twos of my radio program are on there as well, just I think like you've got. So that's quite active at Richard Dolan Members. And then I've got the YouTube channel, which is just type my name in for YouTube, Richard Dolan. You'll find it, Richard M. Dolan. And those are the main areas where I do a lot of my activity these days. I've got lots of videos. I do a weekly program with my wife, Tracy, called Intelligent Disclosure. I've got an interview-based program called uh, The Richard Dolan Show. And I'll, I'll do any number of solo live streams as well. Right on. So that's what keeps me going. <laughs> and I'm trying to get various writing projects done. I'm going to get Volume 3 of UFOs and National Security State in the Tank one of these days working on it. <laughs> nice. Well, thanks again. I got to let you go sometime, even though we didn't get to transistors, my labs, the moon or Mars, but this was a blast. Oh my God. <laughs> Hopefully we both get some fresh members. And when you finish that false flag book, I hope we can talk again. Until then, keep fighting the good fight, my man. Thank you, Sarah. It was a pleasure. It truly was. And boom goes the dynamite, dear people, the great Richard Dolan. Finally got him. <laughs> Not the easiest parapolitical Pokemon to catch, and for good reason. He is one of the greats. And given that his time is pretty in demand and he's always working, I didn't want to put him through the same old, same old kind of interview. And I wanted to try to frame things up around the idea of bypassing the national security state altogether and asking... Are there ways that we can actually maybe get to direct contact rather than wanting to know what they know or hoping that they open up some of this stuff? Of course, I don't see Richard as one of these guys who's hopelessly waiting for disclosure. It would be a huge disservice to his work to say that. But in my opinion, if you want these answers bad enough, maybe there are outside-of-the-box ways to make direct contact with non-human entities. I'm not point-blank saying that spirit contact or entheogenic contact is the same as E.T. beans, but it's a decent consolation prize if the alternative option is true unspun disclosure and waiting for that to show up. I guess I just think of it as a numbers game, because if a lot of the public isn't going to be convinced until this is on the legacy media cable news channels, I got five grams of mushrooms that might help get them there without that barrier of entry that might never come. You know, potentially before we request more from an aging, invisible college for the umpteenth time again and again that isn't willing to give us much, we could just smoke a little salvia devonorum in the right set and setting and gain more from that experience than a decade's worth of slow, highly controlled drips. Maybe, maybe not. But I also think about the work that's been done on astral projection and the work that's been done on remote viewing. And I think 
maybe spirits are the astral projections of beings in another place in the universe. Maybe the mind-to-mind communication that happens with some of the protocols out there in ufology is a psi effect that we've actually got quite a lot of data here on this planet that, yeah, humans have this ability. We focus on the nuts and bolts sometimes, but our best methods for projecting ourselves outward aren't these tin can rockets. It seems to be our own mind. But I am just a simple stoner college dropout podcast host. What do I know? But it feels like it might be time to get creative and strategic and maybe even throw some Hail Marys if we want any serious progress. So I thought that would be a good creative direction to go because anyone who's followed Richard's work over the years or has listened to the Higher Side Chats for the decade that we've been doing this, they probably have a pretty good handle on the history of government interest in UFOs itself. I do think his surveillance state comments are more poignant than ever, and he has an expertise that spills over into several great areas that most people consider overly compartmentalized. And a lot of shows like THC don't even feel comfortable covering both false flags and aliens. So it's a great fit for us to spend some time with a guest who has that. And it's fitting that this episode comes right after Alan Greenfield. Because his biggest gripe, or a point that he goes over several times in his book, Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts, is that the magic-slash-occult-slash-ritual-contact people and the ufologists They don't talk to each other enough. In fact, a lot of times they have contempt for the other group. But at a minimum, they aren't knowledgeable enough about what the other group's data sets happen to contain. And it's a shame, because if they shared notes, they'd see a lot of strange similarities. And Richard said today, a lot of conspiracy or UFO disclosure folks, they just don't know their history well enough, or they don't know enough about how governments operate to make the claims that they make. It's a fair point. I'm embarrassed by my own history Rolodex sometimes, which is why I just ask the questions. But I've always liked Richard's approach and demeanor and personality. I've dealt with some real egomaniacs and divas over the years hosting a show like this. Some people twice my age are shockingly difficult to deal with. But with a background in retail, you learn to just overlook it and deal with difficult people anyway by just accepting a little disrespect in the interest of just getting to the point. So it's nice when you don't have to just acquiesce to somebody's ego. And Richard's ways are actually pretty important in times like these. If you have a disagreement, talk it out, but focus on the data and the arguments rather than hurling emotional attacks at a person. These are polarized times. And I like how he tends to say, I'm not convinced by that argument, instead of, you're wrong. Everyone's got opinions, particularly in the wake of a mess like coronavirus. And I try to digest as many of them as I can and then float the threads that I think are most interesting or valuable to the top. But it's important to remember respect and kindness when everybody seems a bit more volatile than usual. I would also mention again that if you want to hear the interview on ufology, consciousness, and disclosure that I think is a real contender for podcast interview of the year, it's Richard Dolan, 
and Alex Sakaris on Skeptico. I'm going to link to it in the show notes because I enjoyed it so much. I think we always sort of admire someone else's ability to do what we're not very good at, and Alex is so debate-ready and has this hold-your-feet-to-the-fire style that I could never really duplicate, and he's just another great guy I'm lucky to know. I guess I would also throw out there that since Richard has his own robust members club, the Plus Show is going to be available for them also. And to those folks, I say hi there and hello. I hope you enjoyed the vibe of this thing, and maybe you want to check out more of my big old archive over at thehiresidechats.com. Anyway, in the second hour, for people who didn't hear it, we got into Wilhelm Reich and the potential for attracting UFOs with the Cloudbuster gun. Orgone, sexual energy and aliens, hybrids, spiritual technologies, self-organizing plasmas and consciousness, and of course, the real reptilians among us. Although that does remind me, I asked Richard about plasmas, and he did say he didn't feel too comfortable going too deep because he hasn't combed over that material like he might want to. But he knows a guy whose finger is very much on the pulse of that. You probably heard him say that, and he mentioned putting us in contact. Well, true to his word, he did put us in contact, and I've been talking to this guy for the last couple weeks. He wants to remain kind of anonymous, and he was hesitant at first, but he has agreed to break it all down for us on THC, and I know it's going to be a super unique, great show. So big thanks to Richard for helping me facilitate that as well. It's going to be quite wild. And to my own Plus members, I would say consider peeking under the hood of richarddolanmembers.com. He's got no shortage of quality content, and if you want a really great, complete, front-to-back primer on the history of ufology, UFOs for the 21st century mind is pretty much my gold standard. And with that, I'm getting out of here. Stay safe, stay skeptical, and just be kind to each other. Putting the fear of face-to-face human interaction and contact into a society is a very scary place to be, justified or not. I can only hope it's temporary because we need human contact and people need to work. And I don't want to see fear, panic, and hype convince us as a society to pay a price that ends up being too high. I don't know where that line is, but it is important to remember that there is that line somewhere. Anyway, hopefully these strange times will be behind us soon enough, and we can come out the other side not taking the nuances of life and humanity for granted. Take care out there. I've done my part. Your move, deep state disclosure deniers, breakaway civilizations, and agents of the ET info quarantine. Your fucking move. Oh no, you see, the world isn't random, it's attached to puppet strings, control over everything. Nine to five is trying to steal ya Now don't that job seem silly Hello, can you hear me? Or should I play back recordings From some spying agency? Or 
Wish we were younger and free. I'll be thankful when it's all exposed. The vast conspiracy. There's such a difference between us and the dead It's done. 